2: I'm here with Dave the Fish, who wants to say a few words at the start of the show. I'm outraged by rampant Piscesism. Give us an example of what you mean. Dolphin-safe tuna. What's the deal with that? Just make it safe for dolphins and then it's okay? What about tuna-safe tuna? Either that or eat a dolphin once in a while. Spread the pain. Check your mammal privilege. I never thought of it that way. How about all the vegetarians who eat fish? You don't want to hurt animals, but you eat us? Because we don't mind or something? We mind. If you want to eat something really stupid, eat a bug. Anything else, Dave the Fish? The slurs. Something smells fishy. Hook, line, and sinker. We're packed in here like sardines. Those are fishal stereotypes. Well, you have certainly given us a lot to think about. Like shooting fish in a barrel. How do you think that sounds to us? And it's been so great talking to you. Wait, I'm done? Well... Yes, we're about to start the show. I I thought I was on the show. No, just this part here.
0: So who is on this show about fish?
2: I don't know, some people? Like, scientists or authors or something?
0: But no actual fish?
2: Not as such, no. Is that because you have bigger fish to fry? We've got a really nice aquarium in the green room where you can listen to this show and be with others of your kind. Do you hear yourself? You make me sick. I just didn't want him to feel like a fish out of water. Anyway, get ready for a show about the secret life of fish. And now he just had a refreshing bath using SpongeBob. Colin McEnroe.
3: Yeah, now I'm kind of rethinking that. I mean, I was like using SpongeBob. I didn't even find out whether how SpongeBob uh, felt about that. So we are going to talk about fish today, and that's what we do with fish for the most part. We use them, uh, we eat them. Uh, in, in particular, we use them in other ways. Uh, and uh, as uh, our angry fish guest suggested, we don't lose a lot of sleep over this. Uh, maybe we should, and maybe we would if we thought about fish differently, somehow or other, you know, on the sort of uh, existential or ontological hierarchy. They just don't rank all that high, uh, and people would be uh, a lot less comfortable uh, for some reason or other, you know. I mean, people feel less comfortable about, I don't know, chickens uh, and uh, and pigs than they do about fish. There might be some good reasons for that. There might not. Uh, Our guests today are going to help us understand that. So uh, let me introduce them. They're both joining us from NPR in Washington, D.C. Jonathan Balcom, director of Animal Sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, author of What a Fish Knows, the Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Uh, Also there is uh, Nancy Knowlton, uh, the SANT chair for Marine Science at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History and the author of Citizens of the Sea, Wondrous Creatures from the Census of Marine Life. Um, to that point, Nancy Knowlton, I'm going to have you start us off there. Uh, when we say census of marine life, that sounds like maybe a, a figure of speech for the subtitle of your book, but it's not, right? There was, in fact, uh, a census of marine life, a 10-year international effort. Um, and, and we think of the seas as being incredibly uncharted and underexplored and, and uh, a world in which we know so, l- only just a sliver uh, of its terrain and its population. Do we know a lot more than that now? How much do we know about who's out there in the ocean?
1: Well, we certainly learned a lot more during the 10 years we spent on the census, but there's still a ton more to learn. It's been estimated actually that maybe as many as 90% of all the things that live in the ocean still have never been studied or even named by a scientist
3: so uh, if that's the case explain what the fish uh, or the the ocean census actually did accomplish how much what things did you find out if 90% of it is still sort of atlas obscura
1: well there were a lot of different pieces of the census some people tagged big predators and found out where they moved uh, actually some some parts of the to try to find out what used to live in the ocean and how much has gone thanks to the fishing of people, and uh, and even efforts to model what the ocean might look like in the future. I was uh, charged with some others to census coral reefs, which is perhaps one-third of everything lives in the ocean lives with coral reefs. So it was kind of a daunting task. And what we decided to do was actually just try to develop some methods that would allow us to keep doing it after the census was over. So we figured out how to build little underwater condominiums, and we put them underwater for a year or two, and then took them out and actually did the census using using DNA.
3: Well, um, we're going to come back to that, to the past, present, and future uh, of marine life. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what we know about what's there uh, with our so-called underwater cousins. So Jonathan Balcom, maybe one reason that we can adopt a more, you should pardon the expression, cold-blooded attitude towards fish, even though I know from your book that not all fish are cold-blooded, uh, is that they seem removed from us in the taxonomy of all human life. They seem as though they maybe have less in common with us even than, say, a chicken. Um, so, so what about that? Uh, how close or far away from one another are humans and fish?
0: I think part of the problem with that, column is that they live separately from us. They're less visible than the terrestrial animals. They, they're literally and figuratively beneath the surface. And it's only in the last century with the advance of technology for underwater exploration and filming equipment that we've really uh, been able to pry more privately into their lives and to witness more. I think another point that needs making here is that fish has evolved in an aquatic medium. It's vastly different than evolving in air, and that results in some characteristics that are we, we don't identify with as well or that they may be lacking because they simply don't need them. I, I'm thinking of things like making sounds in air. I mean, fishes make a lot of different sounds underwater to communicate, but they don't vocalize the way we do. And we don't hear them if they're in pain um, on, on land. Uh, they also don't blink. Uh, I think if they blinked, we might identify with them more a little bit. Uh, they don't need to blink. They, their eyes evolved in an aqueous medium. So they, their eyes are wet all the time. And uh so so, But the science of fish pain and fish sentience, ability to feel their social lives, their sex lives, their, their complex ways of living, um, really show that these are complex animals who belong firmly in the, among the other vertebrates as, as creatures who we should be concerned about. And that's really the, the primary mission of my book is to, is to shine light on, on those aspects that the science shows that most people aren't yet aware of.
3: And one of the things you uh, point out early in the book is that, at least from a certain genetic perspective, a tuna is more closely related to a human than a tuna is related to a shark.
0: They're an incredibly diverse group of animals. I mean, the fishes outnumber all the other vertebrate species in, in terms of diversity. Uh, combined, uh, there are over some 32 plus thousand species, and as Nancy just intimated, there's probably quite a few that we haven't described yet. Um, it's a huge habitat down there, especially the deep ocean, the dark abyss, and so um, there, there's a lot yet to be discovered, and um, there's a great deal of diversity there, and that results in relationships that you just mentioned. I mean, the sh- the sharks and the bony fishes, the, the, the sort of the cartilaginous versus the bony fishes, are two just distinct. Groups at the level of birds and mammals. Really, we shouldn't be talking about five major groups of vertebrates. We can talk about it. six.
3: Um, and Nancy, I know one uh, fact that you that your the census revealed. Although it's hard for me to understand how you can know that ninety percent uh, of the fish. Are yet, as yet uncategorized or, or undiscovered uh, but but in any case uh, y- you estimate that there's more um, creatures more living creatures in the earth 's ocean than there are stars in the known mapped uh, universe. do I have that right? Uh, Well, actually, more bacteria,
1: uh, individual bacteria in the ocean than stars in the universe. And that doesn't count the fish, of course. The fish we actually probably know much more than uh, 10% of them. It's all the other things in the ocean that are much less well-studied that are really still uh, out there in the dark, if you will.
3: And I assume that involves extremophiles, you know, things that are living in these absolutely unlivable conditions.
1: Well, not. I mean, there are some things that are really in deep water and hard to study, but even on a coral reef, which is in shallow water close to shore, there are tons of things that have never been studied by scientists or described.
3: Um, You know, this wasn't your job. It's more Jonathan's job. But before I I get Jonathan going on this, I'll ask you. I mean, in in all the studying you do of marine life, have you started to think very much about its level of sentience, its ability to feel pain, its social dynamics? I mean, you're observing an awful lot of fish behavior. Uh, How do they seem to you these days?
1: Well, I I think uh, many different kinds of animals can definitely feel pain in some level. Um, I actually work— with corals and with shrimp. And the corals, it's a little harder to judge. They'll pull their tentacles in if you touch them. The shrimp uh, really let you know when they're not happy. And, uh, and I'm assuming it's in some way uh, a kind of pain. I don't know if they can be self-reflective about pain, but they certainly uh, detect something that's unpleasant and react to it.
3: So, so, Jonathan, let's talk more about this. Um, we can begin in a lot of, of different places, uh, but one of the questions that's right there in your job title is the question of sentience. So maybe we can begin by talking about what sentience means and, and then about whether or not it applies to fish. How are we using that word when we ask the question, are fish sentient?
0: Yeah, quite simply, Colin, sentience is the capacity to feel. And in this context, we're we're talking about pain. Uh, I, I've written a couple of books about animal pleasure, so it's very important to include that as well. So we're really talking about a spectrum of sensations, uh, be they physical or psychological, ranging from acute pain to acute pleasure uh, and everything in between. And the science on fish sentience, as I try to present it in, I think it's chapter two of the book, is pretty rigorous and pretty pretty convincing that as, to support what we really ought to expect to begin with. Fishes are, as I say, they're members of the vertebrate group. They have brains. They have nervous systems. They have the ability to move away from bad things and towards good things in, in meaningful ways, in ways that we can do the same. And there's a number of studies of the anatomy of fishes that show they have nociceptors or pain receptors for for uh, pressure um, things, for um, mechanical uh, insults, for chemical insults, and for heat, for instance. So they have that diversity, and these signals are sent to the brain, and the fish responds in an appropriate way and remembers the experience. And I describe some specific experiments in the book that I think are are quite convincing that really the jury need not be out anymore on whether these creatures are sentient and can feel pain.
3: Yeah, some of the experiments are are really pretty fascinating. I mean, in, particularly in these instances where fish were injected with different things, different fish were in, injected with different things mm-hmm. that that caused different kinds of pain in them or different levels of pain with them. And and in fact, there you, you could then begin to map their reactions, things that they would do in response to. So a fish injected with vinegar will uh, deal with it differently and exhibit all kinds of different pain. Uh, adjusting or pain reacting behaviors than a fish injected with something else
0: yes, one of which is to is to make the choice to go to an area of a of a tank where they've the scientists have dissolved painkillers in this case, it was lidocaine. And uh for instance, and in the rainbow fishes in that study that I described in the book, they they would stay away from the area of the tank that was barren and unpreferred. They like rich areas with places to hide and plants and rocks. But um the ones who'd been injected with the vinegar they when they detected that, that there was when they the researchers inject put put the lidocaine in the other end of the tank, they uh they and only they swam over to that area because they soon realized they were getting pain relief there.
3: Um, yeah, actually some of the experiments involving fish and drugs were kind of – I wouldn't have expected such, ex- such experiments even uh, were done. There was one where uh, the fish were, uh, I think, uh, being given something that's probably a distant cousin of the benzodiazepams that, that people take to relieve anxiety. But it was, it's an anxiety-relieving uh, drug. And ex- explain what their behaviors were.
0: Well, uh, that particular one, I'm not sure I remember, because so there's so much in my book that I, even I forget some of what's in there. But I, I know that fishes are respond uh, as we in in ways parallel to us to antidepressants and anti anxiety drugs. Uh, in the case of anti anxiety anxiety drugs, they they they've been found to be uh, less anxious, uh, less. They swim around more. They're they're more exploratory. They're relaxed. And uh, I talk about in the book uh, social interactions of fishes, in particular cleaner, cleaner client relations on reefs where client fish wait their turn to be serviced by cleaners. And um, it's essentially food for the cleaners and a spa treatment for the clients. They get parasites removed. But my, my hunch is that the, the main reason they go back is not because they're thinking, oh, this will make me more well-adapted and be, uh, better able to survive. It's because, oh, it feels so good to have these little fishes plucking over me and taking pauses and giving me caresses with their peccasers fins, which they do, apparently to curry favor. So, you know, that's an example of a a social interaction that fits the bill in terms of these animals' capacity, not just for pain, but in this case, pleasure as well.
3: Yeah, no, the experiment that I was thinking with, uh, of, I think it involved oxazepam, which is probably a pretty close to, to a benzodiazepam. And the fishes, the fishes acted m- less like they were worried about being killed, right? A lot of things that fish do is to become less active, more still, more inclined to hide. Uh, these fishes became carefree, so to speak.
0: Yeah, it's adapted for fishes to be on the on the alert. Uh, so many fish species release a, an alarm chemical that other fishes can detect and it makes them more uh, tense and they're they're hiding away and uh yes, so you give them certain drugs and they uh they they chill. They become more relaxed and less uh, fierce, fearful.
3: Um, by the way, we're talking about fish right now. We're live here in the afternoon. Uh, our number is 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Now, I mean, one of the reasons to talk about this, obviously, is that, and we'll we'll talk as we go along about how big a crisis this is, crisis th- this is but we, are, we do know that fish are killed in incredible volume. Uh, uh, in fact, Jonathan, I'll, I'll let you kind of sketch that out. There are all kinds of statistics I already did right before the news, the one about uh, putting them end to end so that they all stretched the fish killed in one year, uh, laid end to end if they were only the length of a dollar bill bill would go to the moon and back. But you have some other statistics, no, the sun and back, excuse me, you have some other statistics in there uh, about fish mortality.
0: Well, there have been different efforts to to quantify, and as you say, it's really very difficult to to estimate so they are only estimates and at the lower end um we're talking hundred and fifty billion or so a year, and at the upper end uh, there's an estimate in the in close to three trillion two point seven or odd trillion and um it's it's hard to say how accurate those are so i I just say somewhere between those two um But what I do try and point out in the book is we're talking about not just things, just fish. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I tend to use the plural fishes because they are individuals. Each one is an individual um, who has a life. And uh, I have sections in the book that talk about, uh, as I say, the social lives, but also personalities of individual fishes, uh, both from anecdotes and Well, in terms of personalities, you can study it. I don't know if anyone's actually done research on that. But we just had a study coming out showing that archer fishes, for instance, recognize humans by their faces, that you can uh, teach them to push a button to say they when they see a picture of a face. And then they, they compared that face. They presented the fishes with that face versus 44 other human faces. And the Eighty percent of the time, the uh, the subjects, the fishes themselves, um, chose the correct face. So they recognize our faces. They're very alert. They're very aware. They're discriminating. They have preferences. They can make choices. Um, all, for all these reasons, we're talking about um, individuals. And I think the individualization of fishes is something we need to start doing.
3: Um, Nancy Knowlton, that might run a little bit uh, contrary to a census simply trying to catalog uh, what fish there are out there. But before we get to that, um, maybe you could just say a little bit about how you see the fish population issue. We hear a lot about overfishing now. One statistic is there's, there were six times as many fish in the sea in 1900 as there are now. Uh, I know that wasn't necessarily the purpose of your fish census, but what did you learn about fish stocks in general?
1: Well, as part of the census, there was an actual effort to figure out what used to be in the ocean, and you can do that in all sorts of interesting ways. You can read pirate reports and historians, and look at old menus, and uh, and look at archives that were kept by companies in terms of the number of fish they took out. And so, for just, just to make it graphic, it, when people used to go to Georges Bank and fish off the coast of New England, you used to be able to scoop cod out of the water with baskets and now they're, uh the f- total fishery has collapsed so it's we've taken a lot of fish out of the out of the water
3: um and so jonathan one of the arguments that you're making is that we do this partly because we see fish in a very utilitarian way and maybe see them as these kind of featureless personality lists uh items that were closer to to gourds or ears of corn uh than to maybe a domesticated animal that we would we would I- interact with but i mean isn't it kind of an uphill battle trying to get people to think about this differently
0: <laughs> yeah sure um and water doesn't flow uphill so that makes it even more challenging um but I, we have to start somewhere uh, i'm an optimist i think Nancy's an optimist too and um I believe that information is definitely part of change, that social change happens because we become more enlightened about things. And so that's another reason why I wanted to write this book. I was aware of all this cool science, but uh, I knew that most people weren't aware of it. I'm a scientist, and I wasn't aware of a lot of it. And most of it's buried away in scholarly journals with jargon, and uh, rarely does it make it into the public consciousness. So, so um. You know, making that information available to, to the people is the the broad broadly defined people, the populace, the public, is, I think, part. It's not enough, but it's definitely part of what needs to happen for us to uh, make create change in how we interact with, with fishes. And this is a broader issue. I mean, we're not just talking about fishes. We're talking about the oceans, their habitats, and, and for that matter, freshwater habitats. But as Nancy said, I mean, you know, population declines are, are very significant. We can measure that. Uh, this is affecting us. I mean, the oceans are our primary source of, of oxygen. Most people don't know that, but most of the oxygen we breathe doesn't come from plants and trees. A lot of it does, terrestrial plants, but most of it actually comes from uh, the um, blue-green algae in the oceans. So um, that's just one way of saying that we're pretty highly dependent on the, these wet habitats, and we need to protect them, both the this, the denizens and the habitats themselves.
3: All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the intelligence of fish. Uh, you're going to learn things about fish. If you're sort of an intelligence bigot, if you don't want to eat things that are smart, uh, you may have some problems with your sushi after this. You're convincing. Gone fishing. Got your hound dog by your side. That's old
1: Cindy Lou going with me. Gone
3: fishing. Fleas are Get away from boy, All right, we're back. Uh, We're talking to Jonathan Balcom, uh, director of Animal uh, Animal Sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, author of What a Fish Knows, the Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins, and Nancy Knowlton, uh, the chair for marine sciences uh, at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, and the author of Citizens of the Sea, Wondrous Creatures from the Census of Marine Life. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of what we might generally call amazing stuff that fish and and things that are not fish uh, can do. A little bit later, we're going to ask Nancy. Nancy, uh, some more about those um, snapping shrimp, or so-called pistol shrimp, uh, that she was talking about just a few minutes ago. But uh, Jonathan, let's uh, talk about some of the things that you read about in your book. One um, of the things that you that one might think is that, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, trout are trout, and bream are bream, and perch are perch, and never the twain shall meet. But in fact, um, there's interspecies cooperation uh, among fish. Uh, Moray eels and uh, groupers team up to hunt prey. Uh, Tell us about that.
0: Yes, and also groupers and humphead wrasses, as I was reading on the way over here. Yeah, it's a a team uh, hunting effort, foraging effort. Um, You can actually watch videos on YouTube now of... Uh, A a grouper fish is a large, bony fish. They grow to uh, up to six feet, some of the larger species, and can weigh about 800 pounds. Uh, Anyway, a grouper, a a big, chunky grouper, swimming up to a a moray eel and then performing a head shake or a body shimmy gesture, which uh, is essentially an invitation signal to come and join me on a a hunting foray. And if the moray eel is hungry and in the mood, uh, they swim off like a couple of Disney-fied friends on a stroll over the reef. And... um, If a fish that they're interested in flees them into the reef, well, that's where the moray eel can go. It's sort of like the ferret of the sea has that long, slender shape, can pursue animals into the nooks and crannies where the grouper cannot go. And so while the moray eel's in there, the grouper's hanging outside waiting. In case the fish happens to escape to open water, the, the uh, grouper's ready to, to get the unfortunate prey. And so uh, and studies show that when they're cooperatively hunting, their hunting success is higher per capita than if they hunt alone. Also, grouper's will sometimes point... At prey. If something's escaped into the reef, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of tip themselves face down and point to that location. They only do this if there's a moray eel or a humphead wrasse nearby. And the moray or wrasse, more often than not, will come over to, to investigate. They seem to recognize this symbol. Scientists call this a referential signal. Um, And referential gesture. And that is um, something that was only previously described in what we regard as quite highly intelligent animals, such as dolphins, elephants, um, and uh, 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 ravens or crows. And so, you know, we're left realizing that, um, you know, it's pretty sophisticated stuff from, uh, from a fish.
3: Yeah, I mean, just I want the listeners to linger on that for a second. We're talking about a situation in which these groupers would only do these kind of uh, underwater headstands or shakes or shimmies, these signals. They, They don't do them if there isn't. One of these other two species around. These are this is for some reason or other a signal system that's evolved not for groupers to talk to other groupers, but for groupers to talk uh, to uh, other fish with whom they uh, hunt cooperatively. Um, I'll just or, add, Colin, if or, I may.
0: Sorry, sure. um, that they're they're also very patient about it. A grouper will sometimes point for twenty five minutes. Uh, before uh, somebody swims over to to investigate, and sometimes they give up and they just swim over to the eel and sort of guide them back to the location.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for the really dumb eels who just you know, take a hint. It's over here. Uh, all right. So, um, but another thing that you found were these things that you could almost call them economies uh, among fish. Uh, talk about the cleaner-client relationships.
0: Yeah, it's it's not only one of the most complex social. Uh, Relationships in in the oceans. It's it's one of the most complex among animals. Period. This is a a, a, synerg- a synergistic relationship. It's a it's a symbiosis or mutualism that's evolved on primarily on reefs, although it does happen elsewhere. And it involves uh, cleaner fishes who advertise that they're open for business. They usually have stripes. They're small, bright colors, and they may swim in a certain way to s- essentially say, "Okay, um, I'm ready to take on customers now." And then you have client so-called client fish of various species. Over 100 species are known to partake in these cleaning services who swim over one at a time to the cleaner station And then they, um, over the course of a couple of minutes or so, they receive ministrations from these cleaners. Uh, The client will open his or her mouth, and the cleaner will swim in. Uh, They often work in pairs or trios, the cleaners, and then they'll swim through the gills. Uh, The clients never eat the cleaners. You don't eat your business partner. It's just not a good business arrangement to do that. And then the cleaners are plucking off parasites and uh, algae and what have you. Uh, undesirables from the clients. So the clients get a cleaning service, a very useful uh, parasite removal service, and, a, and, a, and I would say a spa treatment, and the cleaners get food. Uh, it is more complex than that. There's been over 100 published studies on, on these relationships, and uh, some cleaners clean better than others. Some of them will take off more than they should. They may nip a, a little bit of mucus from the side of the fish. That's that slimy layer. Well, it turns out to be apparently quite tasty and nutritional, to the uh, nutritious to the cleaners. Uh, if they do that, clients will jolt to indicate that that would hurt or they were aware of it, and it sends a signal not just to the cleaner, uh, that they've been uh, put on alert, uh, that they shouldn't do that. But also other clients may observe that, which may explain why cleaners perform better cleaning services when they have an audience. It's what we call audience effects. So there's a awareness of who's watching, and they're more likely to bite some mucus, do what's called mucus nipping if there's v- few or no clients watching. It's their livelihood, after all, and you want to perform a good service when you have other customers in the queue.
3: Well, Jonathan, if we're going to talk about mucus nipping, I think we also have to talk about herring flatulence. Uh, tell us about herring flatulence.
0: Yeah, it's not a typical form of communication that I'm I'm aware uh, of, but uh, yeah, herrings do release uh, gas um, from their anuses and, uh, or cloaca, if you want to be really specific. And um, apparently, it seems to have a, a group communication function. It may signal, uh, maybe a way of sort of almost taking a vote that it's time to... Uh, to go to a different part of the water column, uh, not because it smells bad, but I think because it's a time of day when uh, there there may be more predation or less predation somewhere else, and so the scientists who first described this about ten or twelve years ago um, couldn't resist um, calling it frequent repetitive ticks. And I'll leave it to the listener to create the uh, the abbreviation of that. Um, but uh, anyway, it's it's a it's a quite unique <laughs> form of communication.
3: All right. You just made one of my producers, Jonathan McNichol, very happy. Um, All right. So, Nancy Knowlton, uh, I I know one of the uh, areas of your uh, fascination and study uh, is sharks. And it does seem as though the shark, uh, um, perhaps alone among all fishes, has achieved a kind of better or different profile. Uh, We're going to talk in the final segment about uh, what things like Finding Nemo and Spongebob do to raise consciousness about fish or fishes uh, in general. But, I mean, uh, for almost forever we've been fascinated by sharks. Now are there all these shark week shows, they may be kind of exploitive and and fear-mongering, but they also tap into a genuine interest uh, that human beings have in sharks. So scientifically, what do we know about sharks that we didn't know before?
1: Well, scientifically, um, a lot of effort's been uh, done to try to figure out how many sharks are left, which ones are threatened, uh, what the population sizes are. Uh, And sometimes just their basic biology, uh, how they reproduce. In some cases, we've never even observed the reproduction of of sharks that we consider really uh, iconic sharks, but we actually don't know that much about their basic biology.
3: Um, as long as you're speaking about reproduction in biology, uh, Jonathan Balcom, uh, that's a whole, well, actually, it's a whole two chapters of your book. But, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, once again, among fishes, among some fishes we have um, maybe a little bit more equality of the sexes. Uh, we've got fish dads uh, doing an awful lot of the work uh, after uh, the first part of the work gets done. So, So talk about good fish dads. I think that's a term that you use in the book.
0: A nice example is, is what's called mouth brooding, which happens in uh, cichlids, which are a very diverse group of freshwater fishes, uh, and, and there's a, there's at least 1,400 species that practice this behavior, and it's usually dads who do it, and in fact, over t- well, what it involves is protecting eggs and or fry, that is young babies, in the mouth, in the mouth cavity. It's a very useful way to protect against another fish who may be hungry, um, so the parent signals usually by opening the mouth, and then the young swim over. They know to swim over, and then the parent engulfs them quickly. It looks a little bit like vomiting in reverse, and then the young are hidden in the mouth uh, until the coast is clear, and then the parent lets them out. and And in some of these species, the, the they've obviously been doing it for a long time because the males of the species have larger mouth mouth cavities than than the females. That's a pretty noble behavior because uh, in some cases, particularly with egg protecting in the, in the mouth, these dads will go for sometimes weeks without feeding themselves.
3: All right, so uh we we've been talking about fish, uh, maybe we're giving crustaceans and other uh sea animals short shrift, so Nancy Knowlton, uh, you alluded before to this new species of sea creature uh the this was well, not a new species it's maybe a new species to us uh the so called snapping shrimp, uh sometimes also known as the pistol shrimp uh, so tell us about this animal
1: well, it's actually uh maybe a thousand different kinds of pistol shrimp they're huge hugely diverse um they look. Uh, to the average looker uh, like, like a sort of miniature lobster. They have one big snapping claw and then one pinching claw. And the reason they're well known to scientists and actually to even people who are snorkel is that they, when they close that snapping claw, it makes a snapping sound, much like a finger snapping sound. And um, In fact, the first studies of snapping shrimp were done by the Navy because the they were making so much noise underwater, it was interfering with sonar.
3: <laughs> and so What's going on with that snapping? One of the things that's happening uh, is what the is it the formation uh, of a bubble?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. So the snapping claw has a plunger and a socket, and uh, the the plunger is plunged into the socket at an incredibly fast speed, um, and it pushes out a jet of water that leaves this claw at about a hundred and five feet per second, and then because it's leaving so fast, it produces a low pressure area behind and um and these bubbles uh that are tiny bubbles that are in the water expand because of the release in pressure and then they collapse and the whole process uh results in a flash of light and, and for a very brief moment of time it's uh been calculated that the the temperature actually reaches about 8000 degrees fahrenheit which is close to the temperature of the sun uh so they're pretty amazing little machines um uh able to to make these uh stunning bubbles. It's, the process is a little bit similar to the formation of bubbles by propellers when they spin too fast. They're called cavitation bubbles, and mm-hmm. but the the shrimp has used them to uh, its great uh, benefit.
3: This is, that is amazing that they create that kind of heat uh, even for a, a brief second. And the reason they're doing this, I don't know if we said this or not, I assume it's to kill or stun their prey.
1: Not only their prey, they're very territorial. They often live in male-female pairs, and they don't like any uh, other—like a male doesn't like another male coming in, or a female doesn't like another female coming in. So if another organism tries to move into their home territory, they snap at them as a way of saying, keep clear, this is mine.
3: And and these are little tiny things, right? And don't they live in sometimes—in some circumstances, some of the species live inside uh, sponges?
1: Yes, yeah, some of them do live in sponges. In fact, the ones in sponges are pretty cool because they some of them uh, live like honeybees. They have a king and queen that do all the reproduction, and a whole cast of workers. And in fact, when the sponge that they live in is invaded, some in some species they actually snap in unison, so that all the all the workers in the sponge go snap, snap, snap together.
3: And Jonathan described some cooperative hunting uh, with the moray eels and groupers. There are other kinds of symb- symbiotic relationships with these little tiny shrimp, right? Don't they uh, cooperate or at least have symbiotic activities with uh, gobies and, and, and other fish?
1: Yeah, there's a whole group of them that uh, live in pairs with the goby. So a goby will—they uh, dig the burrow and the goby— uh, sits on the outside and tells them when it's safe by uh, by being calm. And if the goby dashes back into the burrow, the shrimp knows it has to hide as well. But the shrimp are doing all the heavy
3: lifting. All right. We're going to take a little pause here while you absorb uh, all the incredible stuff that we just told you about. Uh, and I should say that in, in both of these um, uh, guest books, uh, you, there's so much more, so much more than what we've said so far. So we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about the secret lives of fish, but also a little bit more about how we treat fish.
0: He flirts with every lady fish as she goes swimming by. And if she gives her tail a swish and winks a fishy
3: eye, a minnow all at once can be a whale of a guy. I wish I wish I were
2: Don't swim away, we'll be right back with more fish tales. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and Nate Kion-Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Esther Shitu and Adriana Smith. The part of Bill Curry was voiced by Albert Brooks. For show pages, articles, and excerpts from the classic Fugu episode of the Food Schmooze, go to our website, wnpr.org colin On tomorrow's show, the Benedict Arnold you never knew. And now, back to Colin.
3: Yeah, one of our specialties, I think, on this show is to try to overturn whatever your latent prejudices or suppositions are about anything. So today, well, tomorrow we're going to talk to you about Benedict Arnold. Uh, And maybe he's a little bit different than you had suspected today. We're telling you that, in fact, what you think you know about fish in terms of their intelligence, emotional lives, ability to recognize human faces, uh, things like that, uh, much of that might be wrong. And if you think the fish don't feel pain, uh, as we've heard, you're probably wrong about that, too. But here in the final segment, I want to talk a little bit more about our relationship with fish, uh, our stewardship uh, of fish, uh, our lack thereof. And one of the things both of our guests, I think, want to do is balance optimism and doom and gloom. But Jonathan Balcom, maybe we should start with doom and gloom, and then we can transition towards a slightly more optimistic view of things. Uh, Nancy talked at the top of the show uh, about what's happening with o- overfishing. Uh, maybe you want to, to sort of flesh that out and, and, and talk about, uh, in fact, why, well, for example, you're a vegan, and I assume this, some of this has to do with just your concern about what we're doing to the, the fish supply of the world.
0: I've always had a deep concern about animals from my earliest memory and I do describe that at the beginning of the book about a couple of childhood experiences that that got me relating to to fishes it was many many years though before I I decided to stop eating them uh, but certainly um I mean my my decisions about how I interact with animals are are informed by what happens to them and uh having worked in animal protection for 25 years I've seen enough about um, slaughterhouses and factory farms and transport trucks and, for that matter, commercial fishing uh, operations, that I don't want to give them money to do more of that. Uh, so that's, that's my personal power as a consumer to affect change at that level. Uh, but certainly um, we mentioned earlier about the numbers of fishes uh, we we take every year out of the oceans and the freshwater habitats. Um, but I, as I said, said earlier, I mean, we need to think of them as also as individuals. That's the level that sentience happens. That's the level that pain and pleasure and suffering and joy occur. And uh, w- it's so easy to forget when you're, you're talking about a, a net being brought up onto a boat that may have a million herring in it. So easy to forget that each one is a unique individual. And so that is part of the book is to individualize these animals and be aware of them as subjects of a life, not just things.
3: I mean, one of the things that was uh, in that uh, realm uh, was fascinating in the book was the the chapter about play that fish uh, do appear to play. There's one. I mean, some, sometimes this is anecdotal. Sometimes it's studied. But I, I think there was one instance where there was a kind of fish. Uh, was it another one of these ch- childs? Is that how you say their, their name? That were they were playing with a thermometer and they were playing with it in certain ways.
0: Yeah, there was a, that's the one study of fish play um, that I'm aware of published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. It involved uh, one of the species of cichlids, and there cichlids. were three males in a captive situation. And it wasn't a planned study of play. It was just happenstance. There was a, a thermometer that was weighted in such a way that it would float in the water column somewhere, I think, below the surface. And it would move in a certain way. It would bob around. Uh, and, tend, and then gradually return to an upright position. So it showed sort of a, a complex re- reaction, as if it was a, an inanimate an object. And, and these fishes individually would interact with this thermometer when when they were alone in the tank, and um, they, inter- they interacted it in, in idiosyncratic ways. They were each unique in how they played or appeared to be playing with this thermometer. You know, is it fun? Is it is it boredom relief, or is it both i th- I think they're not exclusive ideas um but there are, as you say, tons of anecdotal accounts of fishes jumping over sticks and, and objects. And you can watch videos of fishes who've been trained to do things. Uh, in in the case of training, I think we should be guarded about whether that's true play, whether there's an emotional uh, component there that's playful. Uh, but I think when you see wild fishes engaging uh, or, or captive who are maybe bored, um, that may be a more compelling example of what, what we would define as play.
3: Um, yeah there 's a i won 't even try to re- recreate it but there 's an amazing anecdote in the book about uh, some cats and a fish uh, in a house that have developed a game that involves uh, the cat sticking out its tongue so the fish can bite it. Uh, and this goes on again and again and again without the fish actually being eaten by the cat. So uh, you can make of that what you, what you want. So, uh, Nancy Knowlton, uh, we're going to go back to some of the more uh, alarming and depressing uh, parts of this, uh, particularly as regards factory fish farming uh, but or fish farming. Uh, but you call yourself an ocean optimist, and this is actually a movement. Tell us about ocean optimism.
1: Yeah. So I began uh, thinking, trying to think about uh, getting away from doom and gloom when I was teaching students at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, because I started thinking of the program we were running sort of like uh, medical school for the ocean. And in medical school, students aren't taught how to write obituaries of, of their patients. And yet I felt what we were doing was training our students to write ever more refined obituaries of nature. And so I started in a sort of a beyond the obituaries program where I'd get people together and talk about what was working. And this eventually grew into uh, collaboration with people around the world. We launched a Twitter campaign uh, about two years ago on World Oceans Day in June of 2014. And uh, in the last two years, that Twitter campaign, hashtag Ocean Optimism, uh, has reached um, almost 60 million Twitter accounts. So it's just taken off amazingly uh, well. And what people... The great thing about it is that people use it to flag stories about what's working in ocean conservation, and in fact, uh, more even more recently, we've expanded uh, to #EarthOptimism, and the Smithsonian's going to be holding a global Earth Optimism Summit on Earth Day weekend, 2017. So keep tuned for more good news.
3: So, and sometimes against our best efforts, uh, the world rebounds. Our best efforts to to mess things up. Um, uh, The situation in the Bikini Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands is kind of fascinating. That's where we, of course. Tested numerous atomic bombs in the 1950s. Nancy, what's happening there now?
1: Well, the the reefs and the atoll have come back. And uh, in fact, in general, nature, if you leave it alone, i mean, lots of things bad happen just naturally. Hurricanes, for example, do a lot of damage. But natural uh, populations of uh, individuals, the ecosystems, they, they have the capacity to bounce back. If they didn't have that capacity, they wouldn't be around today. Uh, and so, really, what you need to do is just leave enough sort of breathing space if you will, for these populations and ecosystems to recover and, uh, and fish actually are, are 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 some of the best examples if you uh, And perhaps not surprisingly, if you stop eating all the fish in a place, the numbers do come back. And we actually have some good optimistic stories, even about sharks, where the news used to be so grim. And it's partly a combination of um, people realizing that sharks are much more valuable alive, for example, to the country of Palau, where a a live shark over the course of its lifetime um, brings in close to $2 million from tourism income, whereas a dead shark is worth only $108. can do the math pretty easily on that one. And and then there's been an enormous surge in popular interest in sharks. So we've gone sort of from the Jaws mentality uh, to one where actually uh, there was a great headline in the New York Times uh, from Cape Cod, uh, Shark Watching Tourism. And the headline was that they're going to need a bigger tourist shop um, <laughs> because of the Surge in tourism and even uh, in popular media, for example, there's a Twitter account called uh, Mary Lee Shark. She has almost a hundred thousand followers, that's a lot more followers than I have. And, uh, and you know, on the two years ago in the Super Bowl, uh, the left shark totally upstaged Carrie, Katy Perry. So there's a lot of popular interest now in sharks, and we seem to be at a tipping point or turning point for the, their recovery. They still got a lot of problems, but. But the whole public perception has radically shifted in the last 10 years.
3: Um, although I think it's also fair. I'm so glad we mentioned Left Shark. Uh, I didn't want that moment to pass without that opportunity. But, Nancy, I mean, there's sort of a back and forth about this. I mean, you've got the sequel to Finding Nemo coming out in, in just a very short time. And and that's great, except that, I mean, it personalizes fish. It gets people to do something that Jonathan wants, which is maybe to think about fish as individuals as, a, as opposed to just mem- mass members uh, of a species. But in fact, a lot of these species, even the ones featured in the movie, uh, are endangered. And I'm not exactly sure what the impact is if people want to, say, own the fish they see in the movie.
1: Well, certainly there was some concern when uh, Finding Nemo was uh, aired that, pe- that pe- there would be a lot of overfishing of uh, anemone fish because that's the, the hero of Finding Nemo. And I think there's some similar concerns uh for this new movie as well. But I in the in the big picture I think there's no question that getting people to relate to organisms as individuals and see and get a feeling for their personalities is is good. Um every every step you take, they're always they're always a combination of upsides and downsides. But I think Making people aware of the beauty of the ocean and the and the humor and the wonder all those things uh makes gives people a stake in protecting the ocean.
3: Uh, Jonathan Balcom, on the other hand, there's an awful lot of ways in which culture reinforces reinforces the idea of fishing. Fishing, as you've pointed out, it's the one activity like that that you still see in advertising or even in the, the, uh, the iconography of various companies. And is it DreamWorks that has somebody fishing uh, off uh, a crescent moon? Something like that. We're going to play a clip for you. This is uh, Glenn Beck, always a source of enlightenment, talking about some, I think, unfounded rumor that uh, President Obama's new oceans policy would result in the banning of sport fishing. Andy Griffith's show. Seemingly when life made somewhat of sense, and I know life was never really like this all over the country. We're a country that's always had our problems. But a dad and his son going out to fish. Well, enjoy that while you can, because it looks like special interests once again are trumping common sense. A new report out today says it's a move to appease the environmental groups without your consent, done in darkness by executive order. The report claims that Obama will no longer listen to the public as he tries to prohibit U.S. citizens from fishing. Yeah, apparently some environmentalists want to save the fish. Forget about the freaking fish. People are losing their rights. Who's more important, the fish or you? Well, uh, different people might answer that question in different ways. Uh, And we can't count on Glenn Beck to make uh, any sense out of life for us. But Jonathan Balcom, he he is sort of kicking up against one thing, which is there's a sentimentalization uh, of the idea of taking fish, right, Uh, of going fishing.
0: Yeah, you do see it sort of gratuitously in ads. And, um, you know, fishing, we need to see it for what it is. Um, If you try to imagine a Budweiser ad with a deer shot through the face and reeled in on a rope, that's essentially what happens to a fish when they're caught, and that's before the hook's taken out. Um, You know, I try to meet people on wherever they're at, and I know a lot of people love fishing. I did some of it when I was a kid. Um, p- fishermen can use barbless hooks, or they can render a barbed hooked barbless with a pair of pliers. That's a that's a good first step. Uh, you you know, I, there's a lot of other challenging ways of interacting with nature. I, I like trying to see as many birds as I can when I'm out, for instance. So uh, you know, but I I do want I want to go back to optimism though, because. It's very important to end on an optimistic note, and I I seek to do that in my book. I mean, there's a million of acts of kindness going on out there for fish these days. Uh, Just one guy I know, a retired theologist, Mike Howell at uh, Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, who invented a teaching photographic tank where it's a V-shaped two panels of of glass. And you catch a fish in the field. You can put some water in there, put the fish in there. The fish is essentially immobilized for a couple of minutes. You can take very detailed pictures, and you can usually key the fish out to the level of a species or or, or family. And then you put the fish back in the water, and he estimates that uh, several, several thousands of, the, of those devices have been sold so far, and he estimates uh, over a million fish have been saved. So there's a lot we can do to help fish. We don't have to be harming them.
3: All right, so fish watching, basically. Um, All right, I guess we're going to stop there. I will say very uh, briefly that based on everything that you just heard us say, you might think, well, maybe one of the solutions, at least in terms of the uh, comestible fish, uh, would be to farm them. Uh, I would recommend that you read the chapter in Jonathan Balcom's book, What a Fish Knows, that's about farming. I don't eat farmed fish anyway for a whole bunch of different reasons. And now that I've read that chapter, I really don't eat farmed fish. So... um, I don't know. If you're thinking that's the answer, all I can say is read that chapter of the book. There's a lot about it that's cruel to the fish and a lot of, about it that's just sort of fundamentally unhygienic. But you probably knew some of that. I want to thank uh, Josh Nilea for uh, coming up with this idea for this show and producing it. Uh, to I want to thank Kion Wolf for all of her great production work on it, including the music that you're hearing right now. And we most especially want to thank our two guests. Nancy Knowlton, she is the chair for marine science at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural, Natural, Natural History, I couldn't even say it, uh, and of course, Jonathan Balcom. His book is What a Fish Knows, the Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins.
2: There you go, buddy. Generally, I don't keep what I catch. I just yank it, gasping and writhing from the water, rip the barbed hook out of its face, and then toss it back in, leaving it to wonder what kind of God would be so cruel to allow such a thing to happen.